0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience.
1: Coming to us out of the sky, the familiar voice of radio brings endless hours of entertainment, information, and cheer. Today's sound is designed to suit you. Entertainment.
2: Would you like to hear more?
0: Oh,
1: may we?
2: Hey, listen. I have a record I want you to play. What you got,
0: Holmes?
1: It is a rare, one-of-a-kind original pressing. I just want to hear the music, that's all. Is it too complicated to just keep my records in the category, okay?
0: Just put the rock and roll in with the rock and roll. Put the R&B in with the R&B. I mean, you're not going to put Charlie Parker in with the rock and roll, would you? What does it all mean? I don't know. Here's Charlie Clark. Sounds
1: yes! Sounds, visuals, and music podcast with an emphasis on jazz, funk, soul, and hip hop. are tuned into Sounds Visual Radio. My name is Justin. Thanks for being here. This week on the podcast, Ron Carter. Ron Carter is among the most original, prolific, and influential bassists in jazz. He's recorded over 2,200 albums and has a Guinness World Record to prove it. From 1963 to 1968, he was a member of the acclaimed Miles Davis Quintet. Over his 60-year career, he's recorded with so many of the jazz greats, Lena Horne, Bill Evans, B.B. King, Dexter Gordon, Wes Montgomery, Bobby Timmons, Eric Dolphy, and Cannonball Adderley, just to name a few. His bass playing can be heard on many iconic jazz records, and after leaving the Miles Davis Quintet, he embarked on a prolific 50-year freelance career that spanned vastly different music genres and continues to this day. He's recorded with artists like Roberta Flack, Billy Joel, Paul Simon, Bette Midler, and Aretha Franklin, appeared on the seminal hip-hop album Low End Theory with The Tribe Called Quest, wrote and recorded pieces for string quartets and Bach chorales for two to eight basses, and Carter continues to do worldwide tours with his various groups. He has also shared his expertise in the series of books he's authored, where he explains his creative process and teaches bassists of all levels to improve their skills and develop their own unique sound. He also penned his autobiography, Finding the Right Notes, which is available in print and ebook, and also as an audiobook read by the maestro himself. Carter has also lectured, conducted, and performed at clinics and masterclasses, instructing jazz ensembles and teaching the business of music at numerous universities. He was artistic director of the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz Studies while was located in Boston. And after 18 years on the faculty of the Music Department of the City College of New York, he is now Distinguished Professor Emeritus. It's my pleasure and honor to present a chat with bassist Ron Carter. Ron, you actually started off as a cello player, but then made the transition to bass, and I'm wondering what prompted that switch?
2: Well, there were factors kind of out of my control. At the time I was playing cello, I was playing really very well, and I was considered a special performer. And as I got to high school, uh, my high school in Cass Tech was now renowned, renowned for the musicians, it turned out, There's a like a junior college, only a high school level back in the days, in the early 50s, uh, up until mid-60s before they kind of lost lost their way, I think, due to the city being in difficult times. In any event, most of the... Uh, Functions that the educational system put on at that time were looking for some kind of entertainment during speeches or in between speeches and stuff. And they'd often call a cast to provide them some kind of musical intervention, more or less. And I noticed that the cello players were getting called, and I wasn't one of those who got called, and I was offended because I thought I played as good as those other guys did. And I noticed that the the bass player at the time was graduating January of 1955, and I realized that there was no bass player, and if I was that bass player, that they would have to call me. Yeah, I switched to bass, and here I am. And then after high
1: school, you moved from Michigan to New York to further your musical education.
2: I had a scholarship to the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York, which I enrolled in the 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 fall of 1955. I was a new kid in town and they were just establishing Rochester as a jazz stopover as the trains used to stop in Rochester on the way from Canada to New York City. All the tours, all the jazz tours and bands stopped there, stopped over. There's a club there called the Ridgecrest Inn, and they brought in all the big name acts for a weekend or a week, whatever the act had before they got to New York City, and I was in a house band that played opposite those bands, so that was my first permanent kind of relationship to the jazz community.
1: During his time in Rochester, Ron Carter briefly meets another jazz musician with whom he creates some of the most spectacular jazz ever made in the 1960s. And his name was Miles Davis.
2: I I met him then, but it was just to take him and his band to the airport. We had no relationship other than me as being the transport guy, because no one showed up who was supposed to show up. And and I I didn't really meet him again until I was working in New York in 63, and he was asking me to join his band.
1: Ron eventually earned a Bachelor of Arts in Music from the Eastman School of Music and a master's degree in music from the Manhattan School of Music. So Ron, once you're in New York City, you start to get steady session work. What's one of the earliest sessions that you can recall?
2: Well, I think my first first big record, if I want to say that, was with uh, Charlie Persip and the Jazz Statesman on Bethlehem Records with the band it had Ronnie Matthews on piano and Roland Alexander on tenor and Freddie Hubbard on trumpet and Charlie Percival on Dr. That was my first one of my first big jazz records. recorded my records course with uh, On Prestige and I recorded with Eric Dolphy. He was working with Charlie Mingus band and he went to Europe often unfortunately he passed away his last trip to Europe. And when he, came, when he was working in New York he was working with his own band of uh, uh, Booker Little and Roy Haynes and Richard Davis. That was kind of his working group. <laughs>
1: From 1961. That's Ron Carter playing cello on the title track from Eric Dolphy's album, Out There. And Ron, that same year, Eric Dolphy appears on your debut album, which was called Where. Yes,
2: yeah. called uh, Where with uh, George Vivier on bass, Charlie Persip on drums, and Mel Waldron, one pianist composer, and myself playing cello only on this record.
1: Ron, staying in 1961 for a minute here, you're also playing on the West Montgomery album So Much Guitar.
2: Which is my entree to the Riverside label, basically, with with, uh, Hank Jones, West Montgomery and Lex Humphries and Ray Barretto. That was my entree to that particular recording circuit, and then uh, I just kept going. I was working gigs all along with Randy Weston and Herbie Mann and Betty Carter. I mean, I was not just back and forth in the studio. I was working actually nighttime gigs, which is how I learned to play the bass better.
1: After some of these early gigs and sessions that we've talked about, your career takes a quantum leap forward when Miles Davis asked you to join his band in 1963, which became known as his second great quintet, along with Herbie Hancock, Tony Williams, and Wayne Shorter. Ron, I could spend hours talking to you just about your output and time with the Miles Davis Quintet. What do you think it was about the unique chemistry that the five of you shared that made this quintet such a force to be reckoned with?
2: He had four guys in the band who were probably leading him somewhere. That's why he probably hired them. And I'm not comfortable to say this because I think I don't want people to assume that I'm speaking for Wayne or I'm speaking for Tony or Herbie or even just speaking from my point of view. And I don't want them to misconstrue my commentary as I'm speaking for the band as a whole. But I think we were all experiencing other musics. We weren't just playing with Miles. I mean, Tony was really close to, to uh, uh, Sam Rivers in that scene downtown with the Loft, and Herbie was making his own records with the Blue Note, and they were getting to be real successful. And, and I was kind of like the hired gun in New York. Whoever called me first got me for the date. So we were we were all bringing a different kind of concept, our personal concept, to this group called the Miles Davis Quintet. We had a new writer, Wayne Short, in the band, and he was bringing new material. And I think this is a perfect storm. We were five, four people who were looking for, who were working on that individual directions. Who decided to let's, put, let's pull this ship together, whatever it was. It was turning out to be. And I think Miles was kind of caught up in the, uh, the backdraft of this group, and he kind of got pulled along and along in our direction. Yes, he was the leader, but the band was leading the music, and there's no question about that
1: well ron i do have to admit it is a bit daunting to attempt an interview with the most recorded jazz bassist in history just because there are so many great albums you've been a part of and it's nearly impossible to single out just a handful of them but i did pick a few records here that i wanted to ask you about and the first one here that i have to talk about is a fusion record from 1973. Many call it one of the best fusion records ever made, and it's called Spectrum by drummer Billy Cobham.
2: Well, this is my first, I think my first time doing a record with Billy as a leader, I think. Generally, he, he, he we were sp- sidemen in other groups along the way. And and uh, I, I, I could tell by the way that Billy played the drums with these groups we were helping out. groups. he understood form and he understood uh, shapes of music and he understood a very di- wide dynamic range of music well, this is my first day to see him being responsible for, for the, putting the band together for picking the library for picking the tune some of them were here someone with other people and it was in, um, uh, impressive to see this person who's such a wonderful side man drummer for that same capacity as a, a, a leader as a drummer it's quite amazing. At the studio, he used, on the general dish, he Used he used uh, the, the, the typical drum kit, you know, two floor tom, tom on the bass drum, a couple of cymbals. With his band, his song, he had double the gear, which kind of amazed me that he was, ne- that was necessary, but he sure played it well, so I just shut up and kept playing the quarter note.
1: On the next record here that I have in my stack that I'd like to ask you about is by Alice Coltrane. And the record is called Ptah the Eldaoud. And it is maybe my favorite spiritual jazz record of all time. It was released in September of 1970 on Impulse Records. And I'd love to hear any memories you have of this session.
2: Well, my my, my memory is that when that record was released, I was doing a lot of commercial commercial work, the jingles and stuff like that. And I was in the studio one day when the harpist, whoever they were on this date, had heard about this record. And she commented on it, that all else was doing was drawing down the harp. And I said, "I'm I'm not sure you understood what was going on there. She had certain, she was playing certain scales. She had certain pitch responsibilities. The harp was really in tune. She picked the right spot for this harp gliss. She was she was the pedals like she knew what to do with the pedals. She just wasn't banging on the pedal for time. And as you would think that she was just kind of fooling around, and then it then tells her and the band who was helping her make music.
1: i'm interested in this record and this date that you did with bill evans the album is called loose blues it was originally recorded in 1962 for the riverside label but was shelved until the 1980s i think this is an overlooked record that has some really great performances on it
2: you know he, he had a he had, was getting a reputation of being unreliable and not too dependable despite being the genius that he was and and, and i found uh, uh, justin that he was my relationship with him was not the kind that I felt that he was so dependent on his other physical needs that the music was secondary to him. I never felt that when I was working with him. Uh, he may have realized that I didn't do the drug scene, I wasn't into the alcohol scene, I was just gonna kinda of play as good as I could, and, and that I was bringing a different kind of sense of meter than the guys he was playing with, being scotty and Scotty and uh, Eddie Gomez, and, and uh, really, really good players who played played differently than I played the instrument, of course. Their sense of playing time was different than mine was. And I think it was my humble opinion was that Bill showed those guys that they heard him that he could function with somebody playing chord notes all night and play just as comfortably as somebody who was playing in the Scotland Farrell not-specific time unit, you know? And I think that Bill looked forward to making those rec- those sessions with me because he knows I was, I was bringing to the table a different kind of time, physical time. And uh, I played like I'm in it. Well, Bill, I do mean these notes. (laughs) So I, I think with me, he was a kind and gentle person who, with me, took care of the business.
1: I want to pivot over to some of the work you did for the CTI label, specifically some records you did with Freddie Hubbard. You're featured on the records Straight Life, First Light, but the one I pulled here today to ask you about is from 1970 called Red Clay.
2: I think Freddie trusted my judgment on my choice of intros because most of the time he didn't write an intro. He just wrote, wrote the lead sheet and said we were kind of on our own. But I think what, what Freddie really looked forward to having me share the dates with him is that the sense of um, steering the ship? He, he he could count on me to help keep the ship going in the right direction. He, I was reliable. I'm sure he said I was a really good player. I was getting better. I was kind of a no nonsense personality, you know, and and I was ready to see the problem and help solve them. You know, I wasn't a, I wasn't a bitcher or a complainer, you know, or or a, or a guy who causes more grief than his presence is worth. I think he recognized all those traits of me.
1: Ron, about 20 years ago, I was at the record store and picked up an album that you're playing on called Grassroots by pianist Andrew Hill, and I have to admit, Ron, I wasn't very familiar with Andrew Hill's work at the time. I was intrigued by the cover art, of course I'm a fan of any record on Blue Note, and the wonderful personnel on this record, including yourself, Jimmy Ponder, Booker Irvin, Woody Shaw, Lee Morgan, and Andrew Hill has since become one of my favorite jazz pianists and composers. And so this record was my first entry point into Andrew Hill, and so I thought we could talk about it for a minute. It was released in October of 1968.
2: Andrew was cut by kind of like a modern Sony's monk for me. You know, he had a great he had a great piano skill. He was really very shy. You know, uh, I was sorry to leave him leave the scene for a while and come back because I thought that he had something special to offer piano players. You know, and that. Richard Davidson and I shared the, shared the chairs with him, and I certainly, I don't know about Richard, I had a great time playing with this person who hit the, hit, hit the courts differently, you know? He knew for him, don't play this, don't play that, but I'll play that instead. And, and uh, I thought he was a very gentle soul who I was, again, I was starting to see him leave the concert so early.
1: Ron, speaking of piano players, you also got to work with another one of my favorite jazz piano players, and that is Gene Harris, who was a member of the jazz piano trio The Three Sounds from 1956 through 1973. And you're playing on this super funky record of his from 1972, simply called Gene Harris of The Three Sounds. Let's check out a little bit of your great bass playing on the track, Listen Here.
2: A soulful player, you know, like the Junior Man's kind of school, and then I hadn't played with that. I hadn't played with that style of piano player since my days recording with uh, Junior Man's and Mickey Roker. We did several records for Riverside, one of the Dancers Only in a series, like that. And I hadn't played with that style of piano since those days. So it was nice to revisit that concept. Uh, watch this. Watch the courses develop by this. Really, really, really really good blues player who's kind of got some Oscar Pearson in it. It's interesting, interesting to see the combination, you know?
1: Ron, the next record on my stack here that I wanted to talk about is a beautiful record called The Three Faces of Yusuf Latif, released in 1960 on the Riverside label, and this is another date where you're strictly playing cello.
2: I met him in Detroit years ago at the place called the, the, the show bar on... Uh, DeQuinder in South Street in Detroit, and when I went to the, I was uh, home from the first spring break at Eastman. I was probably 18, 19, uh, saw second year in college, and between the Smiths, between the two years at summer break, so I came home to Detroit, and I went by where he was working at the club, and Ernie Farrell was playing bass, who was John Coltrane's widow's cousin, and. uh he was playing on balloons and all those sounds that Ayrton bought later on in his Brazilian concept. And it's really amazing to hear him play and he really played really, really wonderful note orders. You know, I, Wilbur Hardin, is who was famous in Detroit, and unfortunately never got past that fame, but he sure was worth it. Uh, it's a good band. He lost and was playing piano and I met all of them later in New York when I did move to New York and got involved in the, New york jazz scene so when yusuf came to new york when he moved to new york also apparently he was doing a record for and he wanted to use a cello player so someone told him i said, should call me and uh, i made this record with him uh a really nice record and, and uh, interesting that the stuff became full circle person who i used to watch when i was just passing through detroit between on summer break vacations and uh i, I ended up in, in new york as we all try to do at some point, and and I end up on this date with this incredible uh, oboe player, saxophone player, you know? And uh, Hugh Lawson was playing piano, and I think Lou Hayes was playing drums. There's a, a reunion of Detroit guys with this stranger from Detroit, which is me.
1: Ron, speaking of flute players, you also did some great records with Hubert Laws.
2: Yeah, man. What, uh, what, the, what a flute player. I mean, he's the guy who I tell everybody, you think you play flute? You buy this record, Hubert Laws. And I'm, I'm always saying that, uh, Justin, because I think the classical world, I never hear them in general give the jazz players credit for what they do on their instrument, you know? And here's a good example of me that the. Uh, I never heard any of the classical flute players and enthusiasts mention Hubert Laws, and how could they not know who he is if they play flute? It's kind of a sore point with me that they don't recognize him as the jazz community does, because he plays flute really well. I mean, it's just another, a whole other level of sound and, and instrument control, and he can play the blues, and and uh, he knows he knows the flute library. He can play the box stuff. I mean, he's just, just an incredible player, and and I can't praise him loud enough or long enough. And I can get more and more dismayed that the classical flute ensembles never mention him when they talk about influenced by flute players. You know? And it's unfortunate that they haven't gotten that far in their comfort zone about what they do to look around and see what, what was here before them. You know? an, an incredible player. A record called Friends. You gotta get that one. Hubert, all this is for my equipment. My four cellos, piano, bass, drums. I'm playing a little piccolo bass. Hubert plays flute. It's all classical classical jazz records. I've taken some primary jazz classical themes, symphony stuff like that, and I've arranged them for my jazz octet.
1: All right, Ron, well, we are working through this stack of records that I pulled here that you are featured on. And the next one we have here is called Much Less by pianist Les McCann, recorded in 1968 and released in 1969 on the Atlantic label. Any memories of this session of working with Les?
2: Only what a compelling piano player he was. He didn't have the skill of other piano players. You know, like Herbie's got tremendous skill, just plain skill. But well, Les has so much emotion when he plays. Skill level is not really critical to his musical survival. It isn't that he just plays within his within his sphere of skill, but he uses it to help him express the lyrics, for example. you know. And uh, he plays within the beat that the piano can establish with different guys. I've heard him play with his band. I've, I've been a couple a couple of records with him as a side man in his group. you know. And it's just... Uh, a really, a really sensitive piano player, especially in a genre that doesn't require doesn't doesn't require the piano player necessarily to be sensitive. Which isn't to say that there are people who play that style are not sensitive. But I don't least, I don't. Actually, I don't feel that. I don't feel that from my from them, as I have done with uh, uh, Les McCann, you know, picks the right keys, for example. You know, and he picks the right tempo for his songs, and he's plays within his skill level, which is interesting enough, makes him sound even better.
1: Okay, Ron, well, as a drummer myself, I wanted to ask about this record that I pulled by drummer Idris Muhammad. It was released in 1971 on Prestige Records, and it's called Peace and Rhythm. And it's a little bit different from his other jazz funk records that he cut in the 70s. This record's a little more spacey and open-ended.
2: His name was Leo Morris back in the day. And I knew him before he was Idris, and he played even better when he got to be Idris. He was older. You've been on more gigs, you know, and, and we both had gotten more mature. We both kind of figured out what we were gonna to try to do to make our music, whatever our means, the bass player's music or the drum music. Uh again, he always had a great recorded drum sound. Like, like Joe Chambers, man, you know, he has a wonderful sound on records, like Connie Kay, you know? The sound that they get on the drum on recordings is fantastic, and they, they understood uh, uh, Justin that to play a, a, a club gig on drums and go to the studio with that same gr- club club mentality, it doesn't work. You know, I've seen dates fall apart because the, the musicians, in this case the drummer, was unable to or unwilling to adjust his thing, whatever that decides to be described as a volume or a picture of the drums or activity, to be a part of the group on a recording session, you know, and... and uh, uh, Adriez understood that. You know, I mean, he was a pleasure to play with as a side man, because he was a he was aware, like like uh, a Fournier. They were aware of the musical environment, and they, they responded accordingly to what that environment would need from the drummer.
1: Ron, the next record I have here is from 1967, and it's by one of the unheralded geniuses from the Blue Note world, and that is pianist, composer, and arranger Duke Pearson. You're playing on this wonderful album called Sweet Honey Bee.
2: I remember he played wonderful trumpet, and we were on a date together at some point, and Donald Byrd kept messing up for whatever happened. And and, and, and uh, Duke took one and said, hey man, it goes like this. And everyone was just, just stunned that he played trumpet also, we played enough to show Dallenberg how to play the phrase that was the phrase that was up in the air. You know, it was, it was, it was an astonishing representative. And you keep your mouth shut and keep playing. People find out what you do just because it's necessary at that time. We, we were going to make a record together outside in California with keep News, and he had arranged to have Duke Pearson come from Atlanta, where he ultimately had retired to to come to San Francisco to Berkeley and make a a duo record and uh, his illness whatever it was prevented him from traveling and he passed away shortly after that.
1: as I flip through these records here that I picked to talk about, I am truly just astonished at how many of these are stone-cold classics. And this next one is no exception. It's called Pieces of a Man by Gil Scott-Heron. It was released in 1971 and went on to become one of the best-selling LPs on the Flying Dutchman label.
2: Well, again, the guys came to New York and... uh... The bass player who they had in Washington either couldn't make it or something happened and they needed a bass player at the last minute. So I get a call from uh, the producer saying that they got a problem because they can't get a bass player. They haven't been able to find who they wanted for this date. And uh, was I available? And I said, yes, I am. You know, what is it? He said, there's a singer coming in from Washington with his band. I said, well, I'm available, you know. So I got down there and a guy named Brian was the keyboard player, kind of the the band leader. And uh, Gil Scott Heron had this library that they all knew but me. And, and we figured out what to play and, and uh, the record is history, man. It's a great record, it's way, way, about 50 years early. <laughs>
1: We're on this next record I pulled is another one from the CTI label, and it's called Mizrob by the Hungarian guitarist Gabor Jabo. released in 1973.
2: Well, he came to New York uh, after the, during the Hungarian Revolution. He came over with Attila Zoller, who was another guitar player. And uh, you know, Gabor brought this thing to the system, and the system was ready to enjoy what he did, because he was a nice guy. He read music. He, had a, he was sensitive to other, other people. He was here not not long enough to really make an impact, I thought, you know. He he had his own sound. He had his own way of playing the changes, you know. It was just him. And unfortunately, he left here too soon before he could uh, add his name to the important list of guitar players, guitar players gotta know. I enjoyed playing with him. We did a couple of gigs together, me, him, Charles Lloyd, and Tony Williams for a while.
1: Ron, we're coming to the end of my stack here, and the next two records that I have are both by McCoy Tyner. One of them is called The Real McCoy, and the other one is called Expansions. Both of these were released on the Blue Note label in 1967 and
2: 1970, respectively. We had had a lot of fun together. The the Milestone Jazz Tour with McCoy, uh, Sonia Rollins, and Al Foster is a very successful tour. We made, made a record called The Milestone Jazz Stars. I was I didn't understand why the other jazz records at that time would not pick up on this idea that uh, Riverside Records had, Creed had done this as well, where they take the label on tour with the guys who made the records. I didn't, I didn't understand why Columbia didn't do it or Sony or East West Records. I didn't understand why they wouldn't follow track. You know, it seems to me that, uh, you know, when you look at the, the history of television, for example, whenever there's a one hit show, Everybody cops it in some form or another. They have to, you know, because they got a big audience trying to to save their fan club, their audience, you know? And then I thought that the jazz record companies who didn't follow that lead at that time were making a big mistake and making themselves more visible to the jazz community. Cortana was one of those people who should have been known by a wider bunch of people who he would have known had this tour been able to repeat it, had been able to be repeated by other jazz labels. Having said that, McCoy was an incredible player, as everyone knows, but he was really a really funny guy. His sense of humor was really wonderful, and and our joke has always been, when I first met him in the studio, if you know McCoy's style, he really was a left-hand favorite. He really likes to stay down there for a while, and uh, he also plays Steinway piano. So after the first take, I called him aside when no one could hear my commentary, because I wanted to be a wise guy, man. I said, McCoy, see this piano over there? He said, yeah. I said, what does it say? He said, hey hey man, it says Steinway, what? I said, don't play past the S. That's what I joked for 50 years after that. Ladies and gentlemen, Ron Carter, Sonny Rollins, McCoy Tyner,
0: and their good friend Al Foster. Ladies and gentlemen, the Milestone Jazz Stars.
1: And Ron, another great record from CTI, this one from 1974, by a vibraphonist, Milt Jackson, called Olinga. This is one of my favorite Milt Jackson records.
2: Well, my first contact with him was by my first record, which was the Django record, titled Django with John Lewis and, and uh, uh, Percy Hees and, and Kenny Clark playing drums. And, and uh, yeah, that's going back to his, uh, the record had a big MJQ on in purple letters about things, you know? Mild is its personification of how to find the right notes on a vibe without a lot of notes to go around him. And, and really, a, a, a nice, nice man. A really, another humorous guy who played really good pool. By the way, <laughs> he, he's a good pool, a good pool player, and a really lovely man.
1: Ron, I hear a lot of similarities between the vibraphone playing of Milt Jackson and this next gentleman here, Roy Ayers. He played on a couple of his instrumental records from the late 60s that he released on Atlantic.
2: No, at the time he wasn't singing then, he was just kind of a, a really good vibe player out of the Milt Jackson mold, you know, and, and later on he did make a record singing, I'm a part of it, somewhere on the record, I made some records with, making tracks singing. He's back active again after being off for a while, I hear and I've seen his name, but I haven't seen him in a long time. And I can only remember he's a guy who came to the date with all this enthusiasm and arrangements and he made him work.
1: we're down to the final two records in my stack here and the next one is a 1981 record that you cut with cedar walton called hardened soul and this is a really warm intimate record with just the two of you and i wondered if you could talk about this one
2: yeah that's one of my favorite records as quite as a skeptic we did some guy cedar knew had the studio in his house which was my first record made that i made that wasn't in in a studio studio you know and and uh, I kind of took it like, like a lark, like an experiment. I didn't, of course I took it seriously to play with Cedar, was always fun, but to do a record for my first time in somebody's house, was a little bit weird, you know? And, yeah. and, and uh, so now everybody's house has been turned into a recording studio in some form or fashion. But uh, uh, I, I missed that environment. And So when Cedar came in with this guy, he said, I, mean, I got this friend who's got a studio in his house to make a record. Well, for me, it was kind of, <laughs> going, kind of like a, well, what is this? How do you make a record like in your house, man? Yeah, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't as convinced as he was that it'd be equal to Rudy Van Gelder's studio or Clinton studio or CBS on 30, 30th Street where Miles made his records. I wasn't convinced that it was going equal to those kind of physical environments, and I was wrong. I was wrong and had a good time.
1: Well, Ron, if you can believe it or not, we have reached the very last record of my stack here. I'll bet you thought that was never going to happen. <laughs> okay. So the record that I have picked out here is fittingly titled The Low End Theory, which is apropos for such an incredible bass player who's been working in the rhythm section and the low end for so long. And this record is by a tribe called Quest. The band had you lay down bass on the song Versus from the Abstract, and Q-Tip said at the time, Quote, we wanted that straight bass sound, and Ron Carter is one of the premier bassists of the century.
2: Given how many choices they have of other bass players, I'm pleased that they picked me out of the bunch of really good players. And given what it takes to do what they do physically and musically, I admire that skill level to the nth degree. Having said that, they will call me. They get better than that. And that they don't call is a mystery to me.
1: Right, and you have producers like Q-Tip who really elevated sampling to a new level, but computers and samplers will never be able to replace the sound and feel of a real musician playing a real instrument.
2: Yes, and that's a big difference. That's absolutely correct.
0: Beat Nuts is in the house. Special Ed is in the house. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this one goes out to my man. Thanks a lot, for Ron Carter, on the bass. Yes, my man, Ron Carter is on the bass. And check it out, going into the '91 decade up in until the 2000 decade. You gotta say the quest is on. And goddamn it, that's the quest is on.
1: Ron, thank you so much for coming on Sounds Visual Radio today. It has been such an honor to get to talk to you. You have been so incredibly gracious with your time today as we went through just the tip of the iceberg of some of these iconic, classic records you've been a part of. And if you'd like to find out some more information about Ron, including his private bass consultations, his performances, his career, or the PBS documentary Finding the Right Notes about Ron Carter's life and career, please visit roncarterjazz.com. Ron, again, thank you so much.
2: Stay safe. Bye.
1: Sounds Visual Radio is a production of Sounds Visual Media. All past episodes of the podcast can be found archived anytime at soundsvisualradio.com. Follow us on Instagram at soundsvisualmedia and on Facebook at soundsvisualpdx. And lastly, the email for the podcast is soundsvisualradio at gmail.com.